are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to computational learning theory. Yeah, I, I thought I would just talk about talk a, a little bit about this area because I think it's incredibly important. Um, even though we sort of, you know, when you do applied work, you often don't think about computational learning theory. Uh, it really is kind of the foundation on which all of this stuff uh, is built. And the reason is because at the end of the day, it's really not obvious, if you, if you think hard about it, that machine learning is something that could exist. Machine learning, and generalization specifically, is the idea that we can gather information from one set of data and then say strong things about some other set of data that we've never seen before. When we're saying things about stuff we've never seen, then we should be a little bit surprised when that works well. It clearly does, like we have lots of algorithms that perform well empirically, but it's worth thinking hard about why that could possibly be true. And the answer is, of course, that we need to be very clear about what our assumptions are about the different kinds of things that can happen. We've mentioned this a few different times in the program, and a lot of this boils down to the idea of um, inductive bias. That is, we're not going to imagine that all possible things can exist in the world, that all possible structures are sitting beneath our data. And so we're instead going to restrict in some ways the set of, let's call them hypotheses, that we're willing to entertain. And we might restrict them by saying that our functions are only going to be linear or they're only going to be polynomial with some low degree. Or maybe we invoke more sophisticated things like uh, reproducing Colonel Hilbert spaces and lots of other interesting ideas. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, we ultimately make assumptions about the limited number of things from which it's possible to learn. And this is necessary because of this idea that we sometimes also refer to called the no free lunch theorem, which basically says that it's not possible to have something that can learn effectively from all possible situations, that we have to come up with learners that are going to do well on some subset of situations and will necessarily fail on others. And this is going to be okay because the world is a structured place about which it is reasonable to make assumptions. So computational learning theory is about formalizing this idea and really trying to understand when it's going to be possible to learn from a set of data, and in particular, when it's going to be possible to learn from a set of data efficiently. Now, it's worth pointing out that when theoretical computer scientists use the word efficient, they don't necessarily mean it in exactly the same way that maybe uh, regular people do. In particular, when a theoretical computer scientist says that an algorithm is efficient, what they mean is that it runs in polynomial time. So polynomial time algorithms are efficient, even if the order of the polynomial is, you know, uh, n to the eighth or something like that. That is to say that efficiency to a theoretical computer scientist may not be practical efficiency as, uh, you know, as, oh, we're going to easily be able to run this algorithm at web scale or something like that. So the, I think, foundation of computational learning theory often, um, you know, goes back to Leslie Valiant's um, 1984 paper that really, I think, kind of created the field and answered some of the, the really fundamental questions and set the formalism by which a lot of later papers would then discuss the concept of learnability. In particular, Valiant developed the uh, idea of PAC learning, that's P-A-C for probably approximately correct. And that sounds kind of weird, uh, but it's a very restricted situation from which a lot of sort of later work developed. But the, the broad idea is let's imagine that we want to build a classifier. 
So the first thing we're going to do is think about an input space. And the input space that we often reason about is the space of bit vectors. So let's imagine that we are going to have strings of zeros and ones of some length, I don't know, say k. And then we're going to take that big space of possible bit vectors and we're going to divide them into two sets. And we're going to call those sets concepts. So this is really exactly what a classifier is. We have some input space and there's some uh, boundary between two or more classes. In this case, it's a binary classifier. So there's going to be um, a set of bit vectors that live in one concept and a set of bit vectors that live in the other. So the second ingredient is to think about now a, um, a distribution over such bit vectors. So there's some concept that we don't know that's, that's dividing um, these bit vectors into two different sets. And there's some distribution over the bit vectors that we don't know. And both our training and our test data are going to be drawn from this distribution. And they're, in particular, they're going, to, they're going to be drawn independently from this distribution. And the core question is, is it possible in polynomial time to see some finite set of the training vectors and be able to have low error in expectation on the test set. So let's imagine we're presented with a test example that is also drawn from this distribution, and then we either get it right or wrong. Uh, and the question is, after we've seen some training data, what's the probability that we would get it right or wrong? And we can call that our error. So if with high probability we get it right, then that's having low error. So probably approximately correct. So if we have low error when we look at test data, then we are approximately correct. And we are probably approximately correct if under all possible concepts in our, let's call it concept class, and all possible distributions over the data, if, if in polynomial time we were able to learn. So the idea of probably approximately correct learning is for a given class of concepts. So this is a kind of a set of possible concepts we might want to learn. Then given all possible distributions on the input vectors, are we with high probability? So that means can we expect essentially to be able to learn a classifier from the, from the training data that when applied to test data will tend to have low error. So we have a high probability of, being a, of building a learning machine that's approximately correct. And can we do that in polynomial time? And in particular, polynomial time in essentially kind of like one over the probability of this thing happening and one over the error, essentially. So you can think of this, roughly speaking, as is it possible to learn efficiently from a set of training data in such a way that you tend to wind up with something useful is the way to, to think about it. And how do we formalize that? And this um, allows us to not only reason about these kind of these kind of classifiers formally, but also gives us a notion of what you can think of as sample complexity. So one of the questions that often comes up is how many data do I need to learn something? And this often has a complicated answer that depends on the number of parameters and so on. In the case of pack learning, it all comes down at the end of the day essentially to how big the hypothesis class is. So when I say so it is how big, how many different concepts it's possible to learn. And you can see why this is necessarily the, the sort of the key ingredient in a lot of ways. Because if it were possible to have all concepts, any possible subset of, um, of your bit vectors being uh, one concept or another, then you almost learn nothing. You can kind of see why this must be hard. Because if 
if the, a concept in your bit vector space can be absolutely anything, then um, seeing sub subset may or may not give us any information about the other uh, the other bit vectors in that concept. So we necessarily have to be able to say something about the simplicity of the possible concepts, and maybe w we might want to limit, say, uh, the ways that the bit vectors in one concept might be able to relate to the others. I find it helpful to think about this in terms of something like circuit complexity. Let's imagine that our uh, that any given sort of uh, concept class is repre represented as a circuit that takes in these zeros and ones in the bit vector and turns those ultimately through a sequence of, of uh, composed ands and or gates and things like that all the way up to a zero or one that indicates whether or not it's in the concept or not. Now our concept class is the space of circuits that we're willing to allow. Now you can convince yourself that if we're allowed to have arbitrarily complicated circuits, then there's a sense in which we like can't learn because uh, learning something about um, you know, learning from some subset of possible uh, of possible bit vectors may tell us absolutely nothing. On the other hand, if we make some strong assumptions like uh, the circuit can't be that deep, or it can't have you know too many of different kinds of it can't put together too many um, of the different uh, say inputs into one kind of subcircuit, we can make different restrictions on the kind of circuits that can exist, and those will limit the number of concepts that are learnable and effectively reduce the size of the space in a way that we can um, that we can reason about. And it's that reduction in the size of the space that allows it to be us to be able to generalize to other things, that I only see a few, but I know that that restricts the possible number of concepts so fast that, um, that I don't need to see every single example. I can see just a subset of examples and still do pretty well on ones I haven't seen before. So that's led to a lot of work then in trying to reason about very general uh, forms of complexity in concepts, and in particular, um, the idea of a uh, of a VC dimension, which I won't talk about today, but is a um, an a very interesting way to think about the complexity of a decision boundary between two classes, and that actually gives direct rise to ideas like sample complexity and learnability. We'll have more about pack learning on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about generative models. My name is Hadi Asheri, a PhD student of machine learning at University of Tehran, Iran. I have two related questions about generative models. First, is it true to say that generative models are becoming more popular than discriminative ones, especially with the arrival of big data era? Second, as we know, generative models usually suffer from computing a normalization constant. So what are the most effective ways to handle this problem? Thanks again. So the notion of popularity, I think, is something that's a little bit hard to, uh, to reason about. So if we're talking about popularity in industry or popularity in, um, uh, you know, in applied use versus popularity in the number of papers that we see in major conferences. These are all kind of different things. 
I think discriminative models are going to be the bread and butter of machine learning for a very long time because they include all of these things that with recent work in deep learning, all of these things that have become, you know, very successful for visual object recognition, speech recognition, all that stuff, where, you know, at the end of the day, we want to go from some kind of data to some, you know, some kind of input feature space into some kind of label. So I don't think discriminative models are going anywhere. Um, what makes generative models really interesting, I think, uh, is a few different things. When we're thinking about things like uh, latent variables that we want to be interpretable, then generative models give us a really nice way to construct these kinds of things. But also it allows us to do fancy things like fantasize data that we've never seen before um, and sort of build models that wouldn't necessarily make sense as mapping from sort of just features to labels. That is, they allow us to do a lot of unsupervised learning. And we think, I think unsupervised learning is really kind of key for ultimately understanding how things like intelligence might work, but also uncovering lots of structure and very high dimensional data. So the question of uh, normalization constants, I think, is interesting. I think, so it is true that a lot of generative models um, have annoying normalization constants. So here are things like restricted Boltzmann machines and variants thereof, um, and things like Markov random fields, where essentially what we're doing is constructing a big energy model uh, and then trying to uh, say, sample from the from the like Gibbs distribution defined by that energy model. This is an important way to think about generative models, but it's not the only way to think about generative models. Things like latent Dirichlet allocation, for example, that's a generative model uh, and a very popular one for, uh, for topic modeling. But the normalization constant really doesn't come up in terms of uh, the computational difficulties. You can do Markov chain Monte Carlo, which doesn't need it, or you can also do variational inference, which doesn't need it, or maximum likelihood, again, which doesn't need it. So there's a lot of different things out there like that. And then newer ideas like variational autoencoders that, again, I think we can view as, as generative models, but nevertheless, the normalization constant doesn't really come up. So again, there's important classes here. Things like, like Boltzmann machines and deep Boltzmann machines and so on may be capable of representing things that a lot of these other things can't. Uh, I think it remains to be seen. And those models do have annoying normalization constants, but ultimately that's just a subset of the kind of generative models we care about. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Aviv Regev, and she is at the Broad Institute, which is a collaboration between MIT and Harvard here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she's the director of the Klarman Cell Observatory and Cell Circuits Program at the Broad Institute, among other things. And when Aviv and I sat down, I asked her the first question that we ask everybody. How did she get where she is? Yeah, I had a, a kind of unusual path, I think, to some extent. Maybe partly because of the reason that when I have two choices, A and B, I usually choose to do both at the same time. <laughs> so as an undergrad, I went to a program. I'm Israeli. And as an undergrad, I went to a program um, called the Interdisciplinary Program that allowed you to study a variety of things all at the same time. That's quite unusual for the Israeli academic system, in particular at the time when I was an undergrad. And um, in particular, it was based on the premise that you could literally study anything you wanted, no prerequisites. You wanted to come in your first day as an undergrad and take an advanced graduate class in something. That was perfectly fine, wow. as long as you did well. We didn't get actually an undergraduate degree. I don't have a bachelor's degree. I only have a master's. So the idea at some point you would identify the, the specific blend of areas and research problems that you wanted to pursue. 
um, for your master's, and then that would become your master's, mm-hmm. and you would be exempt from the need of having a bachelor's degree before pursuing a master's, and mm-hmm. that's what I did. And so when I got started, I was interested in a lot of things. I actually didn't even know I was would be particularly interested in biology, except that in my first semester as a student, I took a, a class in genetics, and I took it in what today is called the reverse classroom with a professor, his name is Eva Yablonka, who's... Um, Lamarckist, mm. which is not standard. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea was that we studied kind of all the basic genetics curriculum at home, and then we would come to class and solve difficult problems together. Mm-hmm. And I immediately got completely hooked about biology because it was so conceptual, and you didn't have to memorize anything, <laughs> and, um, and you just solved interesting problems. Yeah. It was not a great description of how biology is typically taught. <laughs> But it was the first way I saw it taught in, in university, and so I got very excited about it. And then the next term, I took evolution with the same professor, and to remind you, who is a Lamarckist. And so I still was under probably a wrong impression, but by that point, I was very hooked on biology, and I thought that it would blend extremely well with my interest in other more quantitative areas, like some computer science and math classes that I was taking at the same time. Hmm. And so um, I started going a little bit deeper into the real biology or the more typical biology curriculum and um, kind of fell in love very early on as an undergraduate with the idea that um, cells are very nice and beautiful computational devices that we don't understand at all, but where we have an increasing amount of facts about them and maybe we could take more theoretical or quantitative or computational approaches and understand them at a deeper level Mm -hmm. as a result. And I guess this was one one of a series of moments in my life where I was just lucky that my timing of getting interested in a problem fit very well with the timing of where technology or general understanding was at. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much around that time is when things like the, you know, human genome project was probably advancing, and in particular an area of biology called functional genomics, where we start understanding not just the sequence of the genome, but other things like what are the levels of different RNAs and proteins, microarrays were just emerging, and so on. So I got really enamored with the idea that with the right kind of data and the right kind of modeling, you could do something useful in order to try and begin to understand how these complex systems in cells Mm -hmm. are organized. And obviously I was rather naive because I still work on that problem. (laughs) It wasn't exactly immediately solved, but I think over the years it has become a a more accessible problem because technologies have advanced and also our ability to analyze has advanced. At first I looked at it from the point of view of of direct modeling, trying to take approaches from formal uh, methods like Mm. the pi calculus and apply them to model biological systems. I think it was a valuable exercise, but what became increasingly apparent is that we know so little about even the component of biological systems like Mm -hmm. these, let alone how they all are put together, that is just premature. And so I kind of flipped and moved to the more machine learning type of approach to it, which is try to infer what's going on from data. And because data was starting to emerge, it became a more fruitful endeavor. Hmm. And at some point later on, it became abundantly clear that we can build models from data and even infer them, but we have no way of telling whether they're right or not without doing a 
substantial amount of additional experiments using perturbation approaches. And when I came here to the Broad in MIT, that was a major mission for me to try and build also the right experimental tools that will combine together with the right computational tools to try and iterate through this problem until we really solve it. And so that's how I ended up where I am today. So tell me more about what you're doing. You lead a lab here. You've been a, really a pioneer in um, single-cell genomics, which is you know fascinating stuff. What do you tell me a little bit about your lab, how it's set up, um, and what you guys are working on now? So I have uh, both uh, an experimental and a computational lab, what we call uh, wet and dry. Mm -hmm. And people span a whole range from what some people call freeze-dried, meaning coming from real theory and computer science, all the way to people who are biologists who've never done computational mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. before they came here or maybe don't do it even now. Yeah. And um, we try to really take on this problem by both developing experimental and computational methods and applying them to biological systems. Mm -hmm. For many years, we tried to study immune cells. We feel that they are very good, both a good model and they're also very important to understand from a clinical and human perspective, um, where, because immune cells are exquisitely sensitive to their environment. They're mm. very malleable, mm -hmm. and so they're very responsive. We can also grow them in a dish in a way that's quite faithful to their normal physiology. We can manipulate them in different ways. We can get them from people and from animals. Those from animals we can actually get out and put back into animals, so we wow. can manipulate them outside and bring them back in. Even those from humans you can take out of humans and put back into animals. So you can do a lot of tricks with them experimentally, and you can also think about them in these very fundamental ways. Mm -hmm. Now, when we started working on immune cells, we also did this with the idea that out of the cells in our body, this is one of the systems that's understood better mm -hmm. and far from perfect but better there's some groundwork so at least. there's some groundwork and so for example part of that groundwork was that there were all sorts of ways in which you could isolate populations that we used to think of as very pure mm -hmm. except that they're not really pure <laughs> right and we always knew that but we're pragmatists if you can do something you do it and if you absolutely cannot then you make do with what you have mm -hmm. and a few years ago it became increasingly clear that we might be able to start doing genomic approaches for individual cells, one cell at a time. And we became one of the first labs to take on these kinds of approaches. And uh, starting with the RNA content of cells, leading to a technique called single-cell RNA-seq, where we take the RNA content of a cell and we use sequencing approaches to actually measure what RNA is there. Our first experiment was 18 cells. Uh, there is a reason behind that number, a purely pragmatic reason. That's what we could do, mm -hmm. uh, one person at one moment in time. And today, the t techniques that exist in the field, including techniques to which we've really um, contributed as inventors, can let you do, you know, a good tens of thousands in a short period Amazing. of time, in less than a day, yeah, and very cheaply. Maybe the first experiments were in the thousands of dollars per cell, and now it can be in 10 pennies per cell. Wow. And that makes it, instead of an experimental problem, a data problem, which is exactly where we want to be. Yeah. So tell me about how you've seen that change as you've had this massive scale shift going from yeah. 18 to tens of thousands. I, how do you even begin to think about the amount of data you have? Yeah, so, so everything becomes difficult again, and that's really exciting. So very basic tasks that we felt were, you know, stable enough that you could use some best-in-class methods, like clustering of genes, mm -hmm. 
um, handling noise in data, everything takes on a new form. It doesn't mean that there aren't solutions. In fact, people have been clustering very big data sets for many years. They just haven't been doing it in biology. Mm-hmm. And so we go back now again to what has been developed in computer science for other purposes. And at first we just pilfer. We take <laughs> things that are there. We maybe tweak them a little bit around the edges to fit our purposes as best as we can. And we use them as ease. Hmm. And then we see it with... We look at what we get, we look at the biology of the results, and with that we try to reach insight into what's the actual structure of the data mm-hmm. from a biology perspective. Mm-hmm. And then comes the next generation of the model, which is much more biologically motivated, might um, leverage the particular way in which biology data is structured, mm-hmm. the particular nature of how gene expression is regulated, for example, which might be modular and sparse rather than dense and not modular, right. and then can leverage that and develop the next generation algorithm, which is better suited for the biology data specifically. So there's a, there's a very virtuous cycle like that typically between biology and computer science. First you use what's there, gives you some idea about what the data is structured like in the biological domain, Mm -hmm. then you put on your biologist's eyes and you say, hmm, this is what I think is there and I want to develop the next model and the next algorithm to learn that kind of model which is motivated by the biology. And I think in single cell analysis, we are at that place right now. Mm. We are starting to understand what the data is like, we understand better the noise properties, we understand the variation, we are getting a glimpse of what the data is structured like, we understand which parts are independent of each other and where dependencies exist, and then we come back with the next generation model, not just my own lab, but many labs across the community trying to do bigger and better. There are also other aspects to it. Um, There are aspects of computational efficiency that we simply could be spoiled and not worry about before, and we cannot anymore. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about our software in much more rigorous ways than we might have had to think about before, because before it was enough to run it in MATLAB, but now it's not. And so you need to do better and differently. And I think that's a great opportunity for people coming from computer science because the scale of the data is new. And in fact, I think the structure and the properties of the data are just not like things that we've seen before. And it touches at the very, very heart of biology and what it is to be a living organism. A cell is the basic unit of life. It is irreducible. Mm -hmm. You can't go lower than a cell and still be living. You can go higher than a cell and still be living as a multicellular organism. It is our basic building block. Mm -hmm. It is an ever-shifting entity, but it has some level of permanence. We have a lot of intuitive definitions based on many, many decades and actually centuries of studies in biology. the effort to chart all human cells is kind of a 300-year-old project. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah, it actually can be precisely mapped back in time. Really? Yeah, to the point in time when people defined that the cell existed and then to the um, theory of the cell, mm-hmm. which still stands. Um, and it's kind of excited to be at a time where you think, oh, we might be able to put real bounds of the pro- on the problem and take a real stab at it, and where computer science, I think, is going to be the heart of solving the problem more than any other field. So this is a very exciting time. Yeah, That's definitely. one pillar for our lab, to build the human cell atlas. Excellent. So yeah. tell, me more, tell me more about that project. Yeah, so, so the idea of building a human cell atlas is to get to a, a level of definition of um, the different features that make a definable cell a cell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some of it is what we call cell types. You can think of this as a pretty strict definition. And at a certain level of resolution, this is an easy thing to define. Mm. It is easy for us to say, here is a neuron, here is a hepatocyte, which is a cell of the liver, here is a cell in the skin. But once you start digging deeper, things become fuzzier and harder to define. So under the types will come subtypes, and at some point, instead of having strict uh, categorizations, you will start seeing spectra. So things are going to be on the spectrum rather than just defined into categories. So it's no longer going to be a discrete problem, but a continuous one. And then also cells at any given point in time have a certain status mm -hmm. that reflects where they are in the cell cycle, mm -hmm. meaning they're dividing, if they are dividing cells. What kind of pathogen have they just encountered if they are an immune cell? Um, are they re how are they responding to the nutritional sources that are available, and so on and so forth. And those things, to some extent, are dependent on the type that they are, but to some extent are orthogonal to it. And so mm -hmm. we're not exactly sure what level of dependencies exist. And each of them might be affected by each of the other dimensions, but not fully. Mm -hmm. And then cells are also greatly impacted by where they are. Mm. The sort of same cell is not exactly the same if it is in a different place in your body. Mm -hmm. So the same type of immune cell, if it's right now residing in your gut, is not going to assume exactly the same identity as if it is residing right under your skin or inside a fat pad mm -hmm. or in other types of locations in your lung or it's infiltrating an autoimmune lesion in your brain. And then... Um, there is a dimension that represents the, the time at which the cell resides. Um, for example, along its differentiation trajectory, we all start by one cell of one type, the fertilized egg, and we end up this panoply of many different cells, and it is a dynamic process. For some parts of our body, it happens roughly only once in our development. That's typical for many of our neurons. But for other parts of our body, for example, for the cells that make up our immune system, this is an ongoing process that replenishes itself all the time. Mm -hmm. Also true for cells in our gut. And so any cell is present at some moment in time, at some state along this developmental trajectory. And that's part of its identity. So we have all of these different facets. We know a lot about it from what we've seen until now, but we're starting to realize that what that all of our conceptions are built on on these averages that mm. we could measure and not on this truly individuality mm -hmm. that can now be fully resolved. And so part of the goal of the atlas is to define what it is that we actually need to define and to do it at the right level of resolution. So you talked about pilfering from other areas um, that use ML. Do you find yourself pilfering from, say, physics most or, or um, compu straight computational theory? What do you find that there's uh, an easier, are there easier applications to apply to biology than, than others, things that fit better? So, so I think it depends on the part of biology, mm. and it also depends on the researcher. Because of my own particular background and training, I tend to pilfer more from computer science than from other fields. Mm -hmm. Others pilfer from other places. And as we all know, very often what different fields like physics or computer science on uh, would define as distinct things, after you dig in a little bit deeper into the math, they're actually the same thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is about the naming, the way that things are defined, what feels natural to people, and so on. Um, we also tend to go to places where we feel that the ideas of the field challenge us in the right way. 
So, for example, right now we have to think very actively about sampling and how to sample well. And we find that a lot of things that people are doing in applied math are very helpful to us mm. in thinking about this and even defining new types of experiments. So I talked a lot about thinking about individual cells and their measurements, but at the same token, because we're interested in also understanding the systems that make mm -hmm. these cells work, we have to think a lot about nonlinearities. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. biology is a very nonlinear phenomenon. And if you think about it from a genetic perspective, one of the ways in which this manifests is in the fact that I can experimentally perturb one gene and see what happens, perturb another and see what happens. Obviously, I will not be able to predict what would happen when I perturb both or multiples of them simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is because the system is not linear. And so... This makes for a very large combinatorial search space, which we've used to think is a very intractable problem. And that's one manifestation of this intractability in experimental space. You can't actually measure everything exhaustively. Right. How can you think about the problem as a sampling problem and still learn a lot? Mm -hmm. This is a problem that people in signal processing think a lot about. And we do too now, and we actually have to re-educate ourselves or go and learn adjacent fields that we didn't think about before. But there are other fields in computer science that have a great impact for biology today, maybe not just for my direct area of research. <laughs> so, for example, human geneticists have to think about privacy a lot yeah. these days. So do cryptographers. Mm -hmm. Is there an exciting thing that can be done in the interface between cryptography and human genetics in a way that would let human genetics be more impactful in the mm -hmm. general world, mm -hmm. more flexible because it would be safer? Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of virtue in where computer science, machine learning, and biology meet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Tell me a little bit about how you see have seen the work in your lab change as you have perhaps relied more on machine learning as, as there's just been more data available to you and more computational yeah. resources. So I think people mostly tend to think about machine learning coming in as a research problem in the context of I've collected data, now I shall analyze it. But for us, the most impactful place for our research right now is in the ways in which thinking of, from a machine learning perspective impacts the types of experiments mm. that we do. Mm -hmm. So our push to actually go and develop what we call massively parallel single-cell genomics, these methods that let you measure tens of thousands and hopefully hundreds of thousands of single cells, came from wanting to learn certain things with data. Mm -hmm. And we said, if we want to learn these types of um, structures in data, if we want to be able to infer at this level of resolution about cell types of circuitry, we would need that many cells profiled. And so we had better go and find ourselves a method to profile as right. many. Right. Um, same, um, by the same token, we think about perturbations. If we actually want to be able to understand how these complex molecular circuits work, we need to be able to perform perturbations at a certain level of plexity, meaning we need to be able to measure that many distinct perturbations in their combinations. Mm -hmm. That means that we need to do our experiments differently than before. So increasingly, we find our experiments-driven by the type of computation we want to do rather than our computation being driven by the type of experiments we want mm, to do. Mm -hmm. And ideally, we would want to see computer scientists or people trained at least as much in computer science as they have been in biology drive new modalities of asking questions in biology and um, doing experiments in biology.
So what what advice would you give to an undergraduate who maybe doesn't have the uh, the ability to study whatever they they want in their undergraduate studies, but is fascinated by these questions? Do you do the computer science first or do you do the biology first? How do you effectively combine those so that you can have enough expertise in sort of the middle of the Venn diagram to start asking the questions that you want to be asking? I think it depends to an extent both on what you want to ask and where your heart and your um, aptitude lies. First of all, don't assume you cannot do both with full rigor. People totally can. And it is often um, it is an, a common misconception that you have to choose. Hmm. You don't. You actually can do both. Most places are supportive of this. And even if you have to do it in a somewhat staggered way where you first study something and then you go and you fill in a little bit of the blanks, but the the training trajectory in science is in any case long enough that there is totally time. So don't assume you have to compromise. Mm. At the same time, also be respectful of who you actually are and what is it that makes your soul really sore if you really love the math, it is perfectly fine. You can love the math and still do valuable biology. Mm -hmm. And if you really love the work in a lab, you can work in a lab and still get quite a bit of training, which is computational. And if you love the interface place, the place where the two meet, that's fine too. So think about who you are yourself. Try to get as much exposure to different things and go after them. It's also really valuable to realize that in every field, there's a certain amount of core knowledge. After mm. you acquire that core knowledge, you become incredibly empowered. And that's true for math and for computer science and for biology. But different fields train in different ways. So in biology, it is true that there is a certain amount of textbook knowledge, but the research experience is often the only place where you actually get beyond the level of um, that is given in, in class. Mm -hmm. I think in computer science and math, often there is a certain amount of classroom material that is very difficult not to acquire in that setting mm. before going and doing work on your own. Mm. And so there's a little bit room to maneuver between these different constraints to, assimilate, to, to build for yourself um, your appropriate curriculum. One of the other th things that your lab is, is really pushing forward on are questions in vision. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah. One of, the, one of the things that we're becoming particularly interested in is how cells come about together to form a tissue, a normal tissue or mm -hmm. a pathological tissue. Mm -hmm. Now, what people don't realize often, I didn't before I started looking at this problem, is that looking at pieces of our tissue is one of the main ways in which physicians actually decide how we're doing yeah. and what to do about us. <laughs> We also underappreciate the fact that often this is done by techniques and approaches that are more than a century old from an experimental technology point of view and by people looking with their eyes and using, you know, right. our amazing literally classifiers. Literally through a microscope. Yeah. Literally through a microscope and using the amazing training that they have developed as pathologists in interpreting the image that they see. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing feat and it is extremely impressive to see a pathologist talk through a slide in action. Yeah. But it has led to a growing gap between how we understand a piece of tissue molecularly through, for example, doing single cells and profiling them or taking the whole piece of tissue and looking at the genes and their mutations there and how we understand it in this view that is spatial mm -hmm. and is based on images. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's absolutely critically important that we harmonize these two views together. Now, some of this effort will happen experimentally. People will find ever more clever experimental ways to figure out which molecule came from which part of the image. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are, and we are starting to look into, interesting ways in which we can take approaches from machine vision, mm-hmm. approaches like attention, for example, and try and couple them to the... large corpus of data that's out there of images and free text that pathologists have provided for it yeah. and increasingly molecular information that has been collected for similar samples elsewhere. The wealth of labeled data in that area must be like just overwhelming. It's sort of labeled. It's not perfectly labeled. Huh. And so you need to be clever about it from mm-hmm. a machine learning perspective. Mm-hmm. And... We don't really know where the molecules came from mm, in the mm-hmm. image. So that's why it's a difficult problem. It's one that would require new experimental data as well. Mm-hmm. But we hope that there is a, a range of algorithmic problems there to really take on. That's fantastic. So are there certain approaches in your lab that you are using to apply computer vision to these um, questions? So not yet in our own lab. We're just starting to look at the problem, and we're hoping to actually collaborate with people whose expertise is vision. We've never worked in vision before. I'm a great and firm believer in the power of collaboration. So this is one of those areas where we are starting some collaborations to try to work on this. Aviv Regev of the Broad Institute. It's just absolutely fascinating to hear her talk about her work and the applications for machine learning in biology and the, the questions that she's asking. They're doing really amazing stuff there. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.